Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Today, I'd like to welcome a very special guest to the podcast and to the Naropa community, Krista Tippett. Krista is the founder and CEO of the On Being Project and also a host on her podcast, On Being. She is also an author of a couple books and the recipient of various awards, including a Webby Award, a Peabody Award, and a National Humanities Medal from President Barack Obama. It's an honor to speak with you today, and thank you for coming. I'm so glad to be with you and at Naropa. Yes, we're so happy to have you. So is there anything else you'd like to highlight about yourself? Anything that I missed? I just hit all the basics. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I find introductions, you know, they're suspect because yeah. they kind of touch on certain kinds of high points and credentials and accomplishments and don't actually tell all the story of all the things that went wrong and that were confusing and that might be more interesting yeah. to people. There might be things in between those things, you There's, know. There are so many things <laughs> in a between whole life. those. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So could you just give me like a quick rundown of your journey to where you've started and where you are now seems pretty unique. And just for our listeners who might not know who you are, can you just give us like a quick life overview, okay. <laughs> if that's possible? Uh, yeah, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma mm -hmm. and didn't know that there was much of a world beyond that until pretty soon before I, it was time to go to college. And I kind of leapt out of Oklahoma and went to the East Coast yeah. and ended up in, I mean, just, yeah, too many. It's just, it's just, <laughs> uh, I ended up in divided Berlin as a journalist and Ooh. a diplomat, eventually, you know, in a couple of years. Yeah. And, and was working very close to real, you know, genuine power, people who were moving missiles around on a map of Europe. Oh, and wow. Had not been religious at all or taken religion or spiritual life very seriously for mm -hmm. about 10 years, but started to reconsider those things because there was such a, there was, I saw these people with great, big, powerful external lives and really impoverished inner lives. Yeah. And I st was very, you know, I was really ambitious and I was in a place that was impressive to other people, but I sensed that this was, this couldn't go right, you know, mm. that it couldn't go right for the world and that the kind of noble reasons that I attached to being part of those activities, that purpose and spirit of, and ethos of things was, would undermine that. Yeah. And so that sent me back to be, start thinking about spiritual life and actually then getting a master's of divinity because I wanted to study theology and kind of think through mm. this part of life in myself and in the world. Yeah. And when I came out of that, I was kind of looking at the world with the eyes of a journalist still, but with this theological education and eventually had this idea for a public radio show, which is how this started, okay. where this part of life would be addressed with intelligence and mm -hmm. that would also be attentive to spiritual depth and the intellectual content of our traditions. Yeah. Because you couldn't find that and it's still hard to find, you know, in mm. news, in general media. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, you're you're totally right about that. The news feels very external and they mm. very reactive and there's not this allowing to sit with and understand what is actually going on and to skillfully react or kind yeah. of move forward almost. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. My next question has to do with your divinity school training. Mm-hmm. So you graduated from Yale Divinity School and I'm curious with that sort of style of teaching, how has that informed your career and developed you as a person? You spoke a little bit about that. Is there anything that the divinity school taught you? Like, wow, okay, I'm seeing things a little bit more clear. I want to move in this direction. And that's where the... Yeah, oh, it was such a gift. I had grown up Southern Baptist. I had mm-hmm. grown up in a, a religious a world that was very loving, but also very prescriptive and really just about, it was very much about rules to follow. Okay. And oh, the threat boring. of what would go wrong <laughs> if you didn't. Rules. <laughs> yeah. Come um, on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I hadn't actually grown up with much theology. I hadn't actually mm. grown up with much ritual, honestly. Okay. That tradition didn't have much ritual in it. And so, and I had not grown up with a sense of kind of the church across space and time. I've been mm. thinking a lot these days in this world we inhabit about how our traditions give us companions and teachers and that that's like one yeah. of the most important things. And it's, and it's actually something our culture doesn't do, you know? So, mm. so I had grown up and of course in Buddhism, there are the lineages of teachers, right? And it's just absolutely critical yeah. living and dead. But you know that, yeah. and in Christianity there is, there's the communion of saints, there's the cloud of witnesses. I mean, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's the same idea, <laughs> but my kind of, you know, Baptist, you know, ultra Protestant tradition hadn't given me that. So I discovered okay. a lot of depth a lot of depth and and also I think theology is compared to that political world I have been part of. Theology has a whole different set of questions of our lives mm-hmm. and of what happens between people in the world, mm. of our conduct moment to moment. And I found those to be the powerful questions, right? So that yeah. so it's kind of applying that lens of questioning to the world, which is very different from the kind of questions that I was asking as a journalist previously. Yeah, where you're answering the question from is different than where you would answer the other questions as well. Yeah. So yeah. It don't, it's yeah. almost calling for a deeper yes. part of yourself. It's addressing a different part of us, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, how would you define contemplative? How does contemplative show up to you? Mm. Uh... It's, I don't know why that feels so hard. It, it, cause I, <laughs> it does well, feel I just, hard, huh? It feels hard to define it, right? Yeah. But um, it is to honor and mm. dwell with quiet and reflection and kind of attending our interior life yeah. as important, kind of making space for that and cultivating it. Yeah. I really like the tending part. Mm-hmm. It's like tending a garden. Yeah. That's not going to grow if you're yeah. not tending it. Yeah. You got to water it. But it's gentle, right? It's of not, course. It's not, uh, I don't know, other words we might use. About, you know, It's not like taking it on in a kind of act ambitious way that we take on a lot of the other things okay. we do, right? It's a, yeah. it's a tending. It's, a, it's yeah. a quiet care. All right. So where do you discover the potential within to become activated in a direction that you want to work towards? Like, where does your potential come from and how do you engage with that? Do you mean the practices or, or where do you, how do I think about the part of myself? I would say like activating? inspiration, like mm-hmm. when you're oh. feeling inspired to, mm-hmm. you saw the whole of where there was information not being said that you wanted mm-hmm. to fill, where was the potential to move forward in that? How did you activate that to do that? Mm-hmm. I guess I feel like I have always been 
pretty driven to follow what my inner voice was. And of course, it's evolved. Yeah. And at times I was listening to it more carefully or less carefully or privileging other kinds of calls. Okay. You know, I think it's what how we orient, what we orient towards and how faithful we are to that orientation. Yeah. That's something I've always paid attention to. Okay. Because I know it really ultimately matters. Yeah. <laughs> I like that you said inner voice because the inner mm-hmm. voice seems where the potential comes from. The inner voice is the thing that's saying like, hey, like check this out. Maybe yeah. you want to move in this direction. The intuition is speaking to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How would you think that you can nurture the intuition a little bit more to be more potentially activated? Mm-hmm. You know, the Benedictines who were teachers of mine early on, they speak of listen with the ears of your heart, right? So that's, also, that's also, I think, Ooh. connected to okay. like the inner voice. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to keep that one. Yeah, that's a really, it's a yeah. great one. Sorry, what, did, what was the question? <laughs> so we're speaking to inner voice and just yeah. how the inner voice. Oh, how do you, yeah, how do well, you, you, well, I think listening to it is mm-hmm. part of it, I, you know, and listening with the ears of your heart. Again, it's attending and also knowing that this voice in us, this inner life is not going to shout to be heard. Yeah. So, right. So we, <laughs> you have to actively lean in. You have to actively listen. Yeah. And sometimes that means actively, you know, cutting through other louder voices, influences. Okay. I think it means actually creating space and structure yeah. around listening to that. Yeah. To, right. Investigation. And, and that's also what contemplation is. Yeah. Investigation of where the inner voice is actually mm-hmm. coming from because there's probably multiple inner voices that we have. I really like the fact that you said inner ears too, because it's like we have yeah. a voice and then we also got the ears. Yeah. So we have the ingoing filter and the outgoing filter. Yeah. So how do you experience a contemplative filter being useful while navigating real world issues? So I guess with the divinity school, the contemplative model and having this new sort of lens on life, how does that shift your reality of seeing the world? Uh, it, you know, it absolutely shifts it again because it's a gentle part of us. Um, it's that these are gentle impulses. We have to take care to heed them and to mm-hmm. keep listening to them. Yeah. It's easy for them to get stilled or muted. Yeah. I think it also, you know, what if we are heeding that, it's always giving us a different set of questions to be asking in real world situations, (laughs) right? You know, not just what am I doing, but how am I doing it? Uh Not just what do I know, but how am I conducting myself in this moment? Yeah. It asks us to, to think about the effect of our decisions, of our thoughts, of our knowledge, of our action, Mm -hmm. whether it's generative, whether it's compassionate, you know, how, how it's landing in other lives. So I think those kinds of questions belong in every moment in every real world situation. Yeah. With the contemplative degree that I received at Naropa, I was a student here a couple of years back. I noticed that the model actually allowed me to ask more questions than to discover more answers. Mm-hmm. And through, through the more questions, there was a lot of self-discovery of developing as a person as a unique individual and relating to the external life that I'm like kind of subjected to and engage with so cool (laughs) 
How do you see compassion enhancing everyday lives? How can we use compassion to enhance our lives with our family, with our communities, with ourselves? It it makes all the difference. I mean, it's just right. It's just it's so. You're just like yes, of it, course. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, we should. Please do that. Um, I think what Buddhist psychology is very wise about is that we that that even though this may be what we long for more than anything else, mm-hmm. it's hard. Yeah. Right. And there's this really tricky piece that we have to um, extend. We often have to extend compassion to ourselves. Before we can truly extend it to others. And for some of us, that's that's the hardest thing of all. Mm. So there's work attached to this, right? There's inner work. There's, again, this attention. But it it is a way of moving through the world. And again, it's a way of transforming any situation in which you're moving through the world. Yeah. That is in which you are caring for yourself and you're caring for your best self, I think. Okay. Whatever that means. And also attending to what is the effect of this moment. How can your effect on other humans or or other living beings, uh-huh. how can your conduct in this moment be of value? Mm. Like, yeah, you said something about the individual compassion being difficult. Where do you think that stems from? I agree with you, by the way. Mm-hmm. I do feel like individual compassion is a little bit more difficult. It feels easier to just kind of like give it out. Yeah. But why do you think it's, it's just, difficult to nurture that? That is just a strange human condition. You know, that is... Yeah. Uh, like, just, what's going on there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, it's, it's one of the puzzling things about us. Actually, I think we're learning <laughs> a lot. We're learning a lot through neuroscience. And, and yeah. uh, we're learning a lot. Of even You know, science is teaching us a lot about how complicated our brains are. And uh, I think that, that that knowledge will be a form of power. But, yeah, we're just... We are strange. Hmm. And You're strange. But that's also part of the adventure and the yeah. gift of spiritual life is that you find that it doesn't function despite that strangeness or overcome that strangeness, but rather through it. Yeah. And that's what makes it an adventure. Okay. And you're making me think that the neuroplasticity of the mm. conditions we've mm. we've been conditioned to not be compassionate to ourselves. So we're uh, yeah. What science is showing nowadays <laughs> is that we're learning how to change our brainwaves into being more compassionate to ourselves. So that's like really interesting to come think about like years and years and years of being conditioned yeah. to not be compassionate to yourself. So with compassion, how does that work for you? How do you replenish your compassion? Because sometimes there's days where you're like, I'm not really feeling compassionate as much as I normally do. What's going on? Or how do you sustain that? Is there any practices or techniques that you have? I mean, I, I do actually think it's really important that that one know, you know, that I know that I I won't get it right all the time. Right? That it's this ongoing work of life. Yeah. And and I think it actually helps to know that because then when you fall short, you know, being able to be forgiving and soft in that moment as opposed to, you know, embarrassed or mad at yourself or barreling through. So actually part of the antidote is in not being surprised when you're not as compassionate as you want to be. And I think I think if you're not so surprised, <laughs> then you can also kind of collect yourself. Yeah. If you're surprised by it, you have all these series of reactions and analysis and, yeah. and that gets in the way. 
And if you're learning to not be surprised about it, that is just being compassionate to yourself. Mm -hmm. So you're actually just feeding it back into the what is working for you. Yeah. Awesome. So with um, practices of trying to replenish compassion, are there any practices you do to create a stronger contemplative lens? So are there anything that the Divinity School taught you? Is there anything speaking with other people during your podcast that you're like, ooh, I really like that technique or the interesting people that you just meet throughout your life? Is there any sort of techniques that you have taken in and developed? Yeah, well, I have, yeah, I have my own practices and I have, and they've changed over time. I, I have always been a reader, you know, so I, I have books that are kind of companions and teachers, yeah. and, you know. Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart is just always with me. Oh, yeah. Um, She's an Europa family member. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. I have a, I set aside time in the morning, every morning, and I do a little bit of reading, and I do some meditation, and I also really reintegrated prayer into my, into my contemplative morning practice okay. recently, which was interesting because I... I realize that that is my my mother tongue and homeland, and ah. and that has been actually a really wonderful thing. So it's kind of drawing on who I am and some of the best things I've learned from others. Do you make your own prayers, or do you say prayers from the Bible or from the lineage I, I, you connect well, with? Well, I do actually like praying with prayer books, and there's one by a a wonderful, uh, actually a friend of mine who's in Northern Ireland in in one of the main communities there, which yeah. is a spiritual community, which just helped bring peace to Northern Ireland. And mm. he's written just an incredible prayer book. So I'm enjoying that. I actually did also in the last couple of years, write a prayer mm. when I was on retreat Okay, and kind of created my liturgy. And I have really found that to be very helpful. Like, I don't think I'll pray this prayer forever because I'll keep growing. Yeah. But I've enjoyed doing that. That's, that's been good for me. Yeah. And I'm just kind of curious, what are you reading right now? Uh, well, you mean for, you out, sorry. for my, for my, for my contemplative piece or, or just like, w like, what are you interested well, in? See, what I are you read reading? a lot for my work. So, okay. So what do you like to read for pleasure? Like what sparks your mind? I, I read actually, I read a lot of serious and contemplative things for my work. And so okay. I read a lot of novels when I'm not working. Okay. And I also, I'm, I recently have really gotten into kind of British nature writing. <laughs> I don't What's know. that? It's books about the natural world, and it, okay. I think that the language tends to be so poetic, which I don't often find in yeah. nonfiction. Yeah, and I actually heard a talk from you where you said you're bringing in a lot more poetry. Yeah, we into, have a lot of poets on there. Into mm -hmm. your like conversations yeah. at Naropa, we love poetry. Yeah. Where we have the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, and mm. there's just so many like really creative, thoughtful people here. And there's something you're saying about there's science over here and then there's poetry and how we can quantify things and we we have this other side of things and i was thinking about how do you distill what love is or compassion or these really heart-centered feelings science can't really quantify those yeah. you know but poetry can bring them to life kind of like brings out all the colors Ooh, now the fun stuff <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So the reason you're here at Naropa is because you are giving the commencement speech to the 2018 graduates. Have you ever done a commencement speech before? I, yeah, I've done a couple of commencement okay. speeches over the years, yeah. Okay, where have you done those? Uh, 
I think the last one I did was with a, a medical school at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Ooh. You know, I there's one. I feel like there's one before that that I'm forgetting. Yeah, I've, I've just done a couple of them. Yeah, yeah it's, it feels like a different kind of art. You're like speaking to a whole crowd of yeah. people, and you're like, all right, got to yeah. try and inspire all these people. Yeah. Here we go. So when you were preparing for this talk, obviously, you know, we're a Buddhist-inspired contemplative university. How did that show up for you when you were preparing for this talk? Did you have a different lens that you put on, or is this kind of this is your cup of tea? You're just like, these are my people. No, I think a lot and speak a lot and am working a lot on like this moment we have inhabit this cultural and political moment but i'm yeah. not interested in the politics so much as in the human drama that's behind all the politics and the cultural events okay. and so so giving a commencement speech now feels like it has to be you know like that has to be in the room that that's the world that everybody's heading out into yeah. and um what's been on my mind as I've been thinking about what I want to say tomorrow is actually reinforcing that a lot of the the way of learning here and a lot of the kind of elemental ideas and practices that are part of, of Naropa, mm -hmm. of our Naropa education are really so exquisitely necessary in this world. Yeah, and I've heard you say a couple times that you don't necessarily want to interview politicians or yeah. go there and there's something about the listening aspect of it is they have this idea of what they want to say and they say it and it's harder to listen. So maybe going back to the heart having ears. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, they also, politicians <laughs> can't, they can't actually just listen and, and answer a question honestly and they're not rewarded for doing so. Mm. So I, I understand why it is not an authentic back and forth in a conversation with a politician, but that yeah. makes it totally uninteresting to me. <laughs> yeah, that's not fun. No. Okay. What advice would you give to students knowing the situations that they're doing? And so say, for instance, they, they know what they want to do in their lives. They're on this verge of stepping into being graduates, and they're like, I know what I want to do with my life. How do I do it? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you do it? Obviously, there was a moment where you saw this void and you're like, I think I can feel that. Now, here you are totally feeling that. How could you um, inform some students who are going to like start their journey? You know, there are going to be as many different wise answers to that question as there are lives. Totally. They're just, it's, uh, I, do, I do think that we are at this unsettled moment where a lot of the paths that might have seemed clearer or more obvious okay. aren't, you know, aren't so obvious. And I think that that creates hardship, mm. but it also means that we are going to have to get less focused on, you know, job titles and, yeah. and, you know, and also people aren't going to have the same. I mean, you, you know, you people graduating now from college are going to have so many different twists yeah. and turns in there. Right. It's a whole new world. <laughs> and I and I think that the the part of that that is good for us and that actually being at Naropa, I think you are like very wonderfully equipped for this is mm -hmm. that it becomes, again, less important kind of. Or, you know, of course, what you do is important, but it's also how you do. It's how you're present. Yeah. 
in a profession, in a workplace. Yes. And also that I think this, a sense of vocation is something larger than you know, mm-hmm. your, your work. That your vocation is also you, know, you as a friend and as a community mm. member and <laughs> as a neighbor. Yeah. And um, I think we're going to get to value those things more now as yeah. this kind of hierarchy of professionalism yeah. comes apart somewhat feels like emotional intelligence mm-hmm. is is becoming a thing in the workplace along with the actual skill and there's more longevity in the workplace and there's more longevity in the like workflow as well so just knowing who you are mm. will never hurt no and fact, knowing who you are i mean that is the work of a lifetime knowing yes. who you are but understanding that that's at a, that that is central work at the very beginning of your life of work yeah. is it puts you way ahead of people a few generations ago. Yeah. And also realizing that you may never know. And as long as you're continually working, you're continually developing too. So mm-hmm. being okay with not knowing, but knowing that you're okay with that. <laughs> so how do you think someone discovers purpose and meaning in their lives? Like where, where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from having your eyes open, attending to your experience, asking these questions. I do think that purpose and meaning kind of call to us. And it's no um, accident that the word vocation you know, comes from the Latin for vocare, calling. Mm. I feel that these questions of not just what we will do or who we will be, but how we will make a difference in the world. You know, I okay. think that those are, yeah, they call to us, they beckon us. And that also is a gentle voice. So we can walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we, if we set an intention of continuing to heed that, continuing to listen, continuing to let in the questions it would ask of us and of what we're doing at any given moment, yeah. then that muscle strengthens, right? Then that becomes yeah. more integrated <laughs> into who we are when we become more skilled at, at following what we're learning. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. So in 2014, you were awarded the National Humanities Medal by U.S. President Barack Obama. What was that like for you? <laughs> I had to go there. Sorry, it was sorry. like an out of body experience. <laughs> you were just like I was just floating. Yeah, yeah. Was it no, really? I, I really, honestly, don't remember very much. It was a beautiful. <laughs> it was one of the happiest days of my life. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was just really uh, amazing because um, mm. I had, you know, I just got this call out of the blue one day. And at first, when they called me to tell me, they said I couldn't tell anyone, and that was just the most excruciating thing. What? Um, yeah, they said you can't tell anyone it's secret. You're like, um, why do you tell course, me that's that? Ridic- I know it's ridiculous. <laughs> For how long? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was just remarkable, and mm-hmm. um, I'm very grateful for it. Awesome. And I, something that I was aware of, that felt important to me is the citation was uh, for thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. What? Yeah. Very cool. And <laughs> what I, what I know is, I mean, when I first in the early years of the 21st century, like mm-hmm. in the 2000, 2001, 2002, when I was walking around with this idea for a public radio show, mm-hmm. it was just, I mostly met skepticism. Mm. And I had to really kind of be a warrior for this thing for many years. Yeah. 
And it did say to me that in these years, we have evolved, and I feel that this is still, we're still evolving into being more comfortable again with the notion of mystery and yeah. the notion yeah. that, that we are spiritual beings as much as we are physical beings mm-hmm. or political beings, that we're letting that back in. Okay taking it seriously and that <clears throat> that it could even be taken seriously as part of the National Humanities Medal. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So you said you were met with skepticism. Why do you think that is? Just people didn't see the dream. They didn't believe you. They didn't think that your information was valid or like uh, they just well, I was doubting wor- themselves. Somehow. I was working in um, you know, 20th century media organizations that have newsrooms at their centers and okay. in newsrooms. And newsrooms are still just very slowly waking up to this. <laughs> there has been an idea that, you know, religion and spirituality are soft and irrational. And while politics and economics are not irrational. So, I mean, I'm so yeah. what I've been aware of, I think <laughs> we have been disabused of that notion. Okay. You know, I mean, I don't think after 2008 you can say, oh, well, when we were acting okay. economically, we're really thinking so straight. Yeah. So you were talking mostly to the people in like the newsroom. It you was were people in, in newsrooms. So yeah. They're just yeah. like, oh, it's yeah. not really economics you're talking and about. And it's not. And it's <laughs> not. So also because religion had become so fraught, especially a certain kind of Christian voice had become so toxic in the yeah. 90s. And journalists had like handed them the microphones and cameras because they made for great sound bites. There was a lot of trauma around that Mm. and a feeling that if you put people with religious and spiritual conviction on the air it would make people angry or be inflammatory or be proselytizing and I knew it didn't have to be that way but I was telling them it didn't have to be the way but they kind of had to see it yeah I mean throughout my life I've met a lot of people with different faiths religious attachments and just spiritual as long as you're rooted in truth and love I don't care where you're from like, it's all good. The truth will come out, you know, and there's always good hearts just beating in multiple different faiths. But when we're giving the, the microphone or the camera to people who aren't really holding the torch of what's real, then it does get a little diluted. But just to know that yeah. the realness is out there and it starts within, you know. So that was kind of like a whole lead up to what does it take nowadays to work in the humanities field? There's a lot of calling for it. We Mm -hmm. need to do a lot of work in here. And Mm -hmm. it seems like you're doing that. Mm -hmm. And what does it take nowadays? When people are moving in their lives and they're seeing how they can interact with just to make the world a better place, like Mm -hmm. how does that work? Or Mm -hmm. what type of work can you do? Because there is a lot of movement in the mindfulness world. Naropa is doing a lot of work with that. And we are giving a contemplative edge to our students and graduates to either put the lens over their heart or their mind and to ask more questions and just kind of, you know, transform the world, transform yourself mm-hmm. sort of vibe. So I'm just curious, what type of work does it take? Well, I guess I think that it is a, it is an orientation and a commitment that could actually flow into any kind of work. You know, like I don't think it's a certain set of professions or a certain path Mm-hmm. I think it is an insistence, whatever you do, whatever path you pursue. Another thing that's happened in this time is we've, you know, we, we have these illusions about workplaces, for example. Okay. That, you know, you could check your 
personal life at the door, right? Yeah. We've done that. <laughs> we did it in schools. We've We're emotional it. beings. That don't happen. Yeah. So I think so as we start to reintegrate ourselves and, mm-hmm. you know, millennials are just kind of bringing this. They're just saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bring my whole self to work. And this is very, whatever that work is, right? Yeah. And this is very it's complicated and we're, it's going to mean that the, the structures have to change and the ways things have been done have yeah. to change. But it, it is ultimately humanizing mm-hmm. in ways that I think will ultimately be good for us and yeah. be good for our professions as well. And to be honest, I really agree with that. You know, you're kind of making me step back from that question, but I, I really do find there's a lot of uh, truth in that answer and it is everywhere there isn't a moment where it's not good to just be a full human, to be in touch with yourself and to know what's going on. And yeah, we can't check our personal lives at the door when we come to work. And I think there was a generation that did that. And I feel like it's dissolving and they're realizing like, wow, this doesn't work. Like having a happy work life, we, we work and sleep a lot. And so if we're happy within that, we can live extremely happy lives with each other, with our families, with our communities. So like, why not work towards that? No. You know? No. All right. So I'm just curious. So what's next for you? Anything exciting coming up? It seems like you travel a lot. It seems like you talk to a lot of people. Is there anything that you're excited about? We've, we've had this organization that had this radio show podcast at its heart, and mm-hmm. we've just created what we call the On Being Project, yeah, um, which is acknowledging that we were doing a lot of other things as well. And, and we've also created uh, something called the Impact Lab, which is going to be okay. led by actually some people who are young and have been working with networks. of. They created a report a few years ago called How We Gather, which is kind of how... Mm new generations are creating community and also crafting spiritual life, in, often in the absence of the kind of traditional formation that uh. people used to have. So I'm very excited about that, about creating some capacity organizationally to be paying attention to this interplay of inner life and outer presence in the world mm-hmm. and the great questions of humanity that are also behind our traditions. You know, what does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? Yeah. I think the third question of who we will be to each other is really the question that this century yeah. forces us to reckon with. Yeah. And if we don't reckon with, we don't, you know, I don't think we come out of this. <laughs> um, and our traditions are, are the repositories of working mm. with precisely this inquiry yeah. and this challenge. And so I just, what we're doing in, with On Being is trying to, in the show and also in public events and then also in Impact Lab, to really just that much more forcefully orient towards those questions and making them alive in the world. Great. I really like that, especially reaching out to the younger generation. There's, there's a movement that is happening. The voices are strong and they're passionate and they are able to shift. And I'm really excited to see what will happen. And I kind of feel like I'm on this planet to experience help and see the shift within my lifetime, within a lot of people's lifetimes And it feels pretty powerful. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. I really appreciate you speaking with us today. Is there, so how do people follow you? I'm sure some people are going to be like, who is this person? I want to like <laughs> know more about her. I never heard uh, about her. Yeah. Well, you like, can, we're on iTunes and all the podcast All those places. things, yeah. Um, and our website is onbeing.org. Okay. 
I'm on and off of Twitter, but it's at Krista <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, you heard that. You can find her where those places are. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today. And thank you so much for joining me. And I look really forward to your commencement speech tomorrow. <laughs> so this will be really fun to kind of yeah. just see you in a different capacity yeah. in front of like the whole entire school yeah. other than just me and you in a room. <laughs> well, thank you. It was lovely. Yes. Yeah. So thanks again to Krista Tippett. She's a journalist, an author, an entrepreneur, founder and CEO of On Being Project, and the host of her podcast, On Being and Becoming Wise. Thanks again. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.